This film is lit, the podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. There are no happy endings, because nothing ends. It's The Last Unicorn, and this film is lit. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. For the first time in a while, we have every single one of our of our segments. It's still not going to be a super long episode, so we don't have 20 pages of notes like we do for some. <laughs> but we do have every single one of our segments, which is very exciting. So we're going to get right into it in Let Me Sum Up. Let me explain. There is too much. Let me sum up. The last unicorn begins with a unicorn in her forest. She overhears two hunters talking about how there are no unicorns left in the world, if there ever were any at all. The unicorn wonders if she could actually be the last unicorn in the world and decides to set out on a journey to find out what happened to her brethren. While on the road, she realizes that humans don't recognize her anymore, perceiving her as a white horse instead of a unicorn. She meets a butterfly who tells her that the red bull chased all the unicorns down the road long ago. Puzzled by this, the unicorn continues her journey. One night as she sleeps, she's captured by Mommy Fortuna, an old witch who runs a sideshow called the Midnight Carnival. Most of her attractions are sad old animals magically disguised to look like mythical creatures, but aside from the unicorn herself, there is one other real creature, a harpy. Mommy Fortuna seems to know about the Red Bull and mentions that it works for King Haggard. The unicorn meets Schmendrick the Magician, who works for the carnival but recognizes the unicorn for what she truly is. He isn't very good at magic, but one night he steals the keys and frees the unicorn. The unicorn then frees the other animals, including the harpy, even though the harpy may kill her. The harpy instead kills Mommy Fortuna, and the unicorn and Schmendrick escape. They head toward King's ha King Haggard's kingdom, but Schmendrick is taken captive by Captain Cully and his band of outlaws. When they escape, they are joined by Molly Grew, one of the band who also recognizes the unicorn. The trio eventually arrive in King Haggard's kingdom, only to be accosted by the Red Bull. He chases the unicorn, who appears to give up and allow him to herd her. Desperate, Schmendrick calls on the magic to save her and unwittingly transforms the unicorn into a human woman, fooling the Red Bull. The three are able to gain entrance to King Haggard's castle and enter his service. The king's son, Prince Lear, falls in love with the unicorn in her human form as the Lady Amalthea. However, as she remains a human, she begins to forget who she truly is and why she's there. 
King Haggard reveals to her that he commanded the Red Bull to gather up all the unicorns and that he is keeping them trapped in the sea next to his castle. Haggard says that he knows what she is, but at this point, the unicorn has truly forgotten. Molly and Schmendrick discover how to access the Red Bull's lair, and they, Lady Amalthea, and Prince Lear enter through an enchanted clock. Lady Amalthea says that she wants to remain a human and stay with Prince Lear, but he knows that they must finish their quest and set things right. Schmendrick transforms her back into a unicorn, and the Red Bull gives chase once more. Prince Lear sacrifices himself to keep the Red Bull from driving the unicorn into the, into the ocean, inspiring the unicorn to fight back and drive the Red Bull into the ocean instead. The rest of the unicorns are freed by this action, and King Haggard's castle crumbles, killing him. The unicorn uses her magic to revive Prince Lear, who is now King Lear. The unicorn says goodbye and leaves to return to her forest, albeit fundamentally changed by her experience. All right, the movie is, that was just a general summary, summary because the movie and the film, sorry, the movie and the book are basically very they're, they're similar structurally. Similar, yeah. There's enough similarities that it, it works to just do one summary. So with that, we're going to get into our game show segment, which we have been quite a while since we've done, but it's time to play Guess Who? Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Okay. Okay, I think this will be a pretty easy one. I don't think you'll struggle with these. Our first one is a tall, thin man with an air of absolute bewilderment. He wore an old black cloak and his eyes were green. Okay, well, none of nobody immediately jumps out from the film here. Uh, the thing that would make the most sense um, would probably be um, Smendrick. Is it? Isn't there an N in there? Schmendrick. Okay, I, 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 in my head, I thought it was Smedrick, but it's Smendrick. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that would be obviously the thing that I think would make the most sense in the movie. His cloak, I think, is like bluish instead of black. Mm -hmm. Probably just to make him f appear like a little bit less villainous. Maybe uh, I don't. I think his eyes are green. I don't know. If, I don't remember uh, the absolute bewilderment. Look, the, the air of absolute be bewilderment, I think, kind of works. Uh, I assumed he was younger in the movie. Something about his character made me feel like he was like a, a fairly not that I say younger. This just says a tall, thin man. I don't know. I guess he could be whatever age. Um, I, I, I'm going to say this is Smendrick, though. It is Smendrick. OK. Yeah, like I said, there wasn't really a lot of other options other yeah. than like a, like the hunters or something, like some random other characters uh, that, you know, we see for a second or something. But it doesn't really necessarily like correlate. The air of bewilderment was really the only <laughs> thing that helped me get there. OK, up next, she had a pale, bony face with fierce, tawny eyes and hair the color of dead grass. Uh, okay, so I'm assuming this is a human uh, that is uh, a woman, obviously. There's like one in the movie that isn't the unicorn. I'm going to assume this isn't the unicorn. The The hair or the color of dead grass doesn't feel like the description that would be used for the unicorn when she, uh, Amalfia, when she becomes a human. So I am going to say that this is uh, Molly Grew. It is Molly Grew. Two yeah. for two. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Okay, last one. He wore a gray cloak over his mail, but his head was bare. 
The black lines on his face showed where the fingernails of age had skidded down the hard skin. Okay, well, initially, it could kind of be one of two people, but then the last sentence there made it very clear that this would be King Haggard. It is King Haggard. The, they really did a good job drawing the age lines on his mm-hmm. face in the movie. It's definitely, uh, that translates pretty pretty directly. So yeah, no, you're right. That was Those were fairly easy. I think, like I said, the first one was the toughest one, but even then it wasn't really tough. It was just, it doesn't really match. The other two actually pretty closely yeah, match pretty close. the characters, at least as I would describe them. All right, I have quite a few questions. Let's get into it and discuss them in Was That... In the book. Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? So the film opens up, uh, and as we start, uh, the unicorn is frolicking. Well, there's the little part with the hunters. And then the unicorn shows up, frolicking in her meadow, and a butterfly flows, flies up. And there's this, it's this weird, silly little butterfly who, like, loves the unicorn and talks in, like, rhymey poetry nonsense. I understand the concept of the character. That being said, I hated this character. <laughs> it was literally giving me a headache. Like, just yeah. listening to it talk, I was like, ah, I don't like this. I'm glad. I was like, if this thing is in the whole movie, I'm going to be like, if it follows this <laughs> unicorn around and, like, says stuff like this the whole time, I'm going to be very annoyed. Uh, l- luckily, it skitters off pretty quickly. Uh, but I wanted to know if that annoying butterfly was from the book. Uh, yeah, uh, the movie pretty much nails the annoying singing butterfly. I also find the butterfly really annoying. It's, it's annoying in the book, too. It's just, uh, I can imagine reading it would be annoying, assuming yeah. it's written similarly to how the lines are. It's yeah. just like, oh, my God. It's Yeah, it's almost like it's. it reminds me a little bit of my annoyance at reading songs in, mm-hmm. like, Tolkien or whatever. But... Uh, it worse because at least those like are beautifully written. Whereas the this, this it's just like I just found it really annoying and awkward to listen to. Yeah, and, like, it's frustrating just like little snippets to. of random things. And like that's the point. It's supposed yeah. to be kind of like whimsical and frustrating and annoying because like it's like this weird you know I don't want to say like trickster god but you like it's like a, you know it, it's the embodiment of sort of this um, chaotic like. <laughs> Yeah, he's a chaotic little guy. Yeah, and it's but it, that being said, it is still annoying to listen to. So, um, so yeah, so the movie did pretty much nail that. I did have it in better in the book though, because I didn't really like the character design, and I wish it had looked more like a butterfly, like a bug, mm. than like a, a little guy. Yeah. with butterfly. Yeah, wings. they definitely give him like he looks like a little person. Yeah, kind of like a little fairy or something, but with butterfly wings. Uh, so then as we move along, uh, the unicorn decides she needs to go and because f- she hears these hunters talking about how she's the last unicorn. She needs to go s- go on an epic journey uh, trek mission uh, to see if she is, in fact, the last unicorn or if she can find any others. And as she's traveling through the world, um, she's talking about how people that see her don't recognize her as a unicorn. Um, and the way she says it in the in the film is that, you know, they just see her as like a horse. Uh, because they're like not looking at her correctly or they, you know, they don't have like they did. They, they're not perceptive to what she actually is. And in the movie, she repeatedly says men. And I wasn't sure. And this is almost a loss in adaptation, I guess. I wasn't sure if she specifically meant like when she said men, if she just meant broadly like humans, like, you know, like mankind. Right. Or if she literally meant men like men, <laughs> as opposed to the broader usage of men to describe like humanity. Um, she does mean humans, uh, like mankind, although yeah. it, it is 
heavily implied in the book that women and girls are more likely to recognize the unicorn for what she truly that's is. That's kind of what I got in the movie. That's actually yeah. kind of well, and then to be fair, we because the only other like woman we see does realize it's yeah. a unicorn. So I guess not counting um. I know but, she does. Yeah, yeah both because Mommy Fortuna and yeah, Molly Grew yeah, both recognize both the unicorn. Yeah, so I guess it could be either. Like it could specific, it could be, but you're saying it's like kind of both. Yeah. Like it's it, humans in general, but like women are more likely mm-hmm. to actually realize that it's a unicorn. Okay, that makes sense. Again, that's kind of what I gathered from what what was trying to be got gotten across in the film. Uh, speaking of Mommy Fortuna, does. Uh, the unicorn uh, does she, is she just the unicorn up until uh, just for clarity of referring to this character is just referred to as the unicorn uh, or did they use Amalfia in before like no, is that the name of the unicorn or is that just the just name the given unicorn by okay. up until she turns into a human and then it's only Amalfia because Smendrick says like oh yeah. this is Amalfia yeah because like, they, they have to give her, her a name. name right okay just making sure that wasn't like actually her name, but like, you know, nobody, you, whatever. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, so, um, speaking of Mommy Fortuna, like I said, does the unicorn get captured by Mommy Fortuna and thrown into her little, uh, scammy sideshow where she shows people, um, mysterious or mystical creatures, but they're all just real creatures that she's kind of like enchanted mm-hmm. or bewitched people to see as mystical creatures yeah all of that is very spot on to the book uh they come up on her while she's sleeping mommy fortuna uses a spell to make her like sleep more deeply and they build the cage around her while she's asleep mm. um and then the the sideshow like circus thing is very spot on too okay uh speaking of the sideshow circus creatures uh the only other real creature besides the unicorn in this uh, sideshow is a harpy. And in the film, this harpy is animated and and it has three giant dangling breasts. Uh-huh. And I wanted to know if that teats, I guess it's not breasts. I mean, may, they look like whatever is that come from? Is that description <laughs> uh, pulled from the book or did they just decide to take that? uh <laughs> creative uh interpretation um so there is a harpy in the midnight carnival although i don't believe her uh breasts or teats are specifically mentioned in the book um i think that is more of a nod to like classical classical like yeah like ancient greek depictions of harpies with like the head and the breasts of a woman right yeah that's kind of what i figure because that is kind of does fall in more in line which is sort of typical like depictions of harpies. Um, but I was thinking since this book was kind of, you know, like a why, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's made meant for you know younger audiences. It would surprise me if the book went into great detail describing her dangling. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Movie just decided that would, that would be a good, uh, a good addition. Cool. Uh, there is an incredible line in this scene, a lot of good lines in this movie, but there's an incredible line in this scene at the, Mommy Fortuna's uh, sideshow where she's talking to the unicorn uh, and they're like, and they're the, the unicorn is, or Mommy Fortuna is like kind of telling her like what's, what the whole deal is and explaining her whole grift basically. Um, and about how the, and that about how the harpy is like the only real creature and whatnot. And the unicorn, I think the unicorn says this, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. The unicorn has this line that is just fantastic. 
where she says, speaking of the harpy, your death sits in that cage and she hears you. Uh, and it, because there's this whole implication that the harpy has been trying to get out and is like very yeah. upset with mommy Fortuna for, you know, capturing her or whatever and exploiting her and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. And, and so I wanted to know if that line, uh, your, your death sits in that cage and she hears you was in the book. That's a metal line. That's a good line. <laughs> I liked that line a lot. It is from the book. Uh, and yes, it is a very metal line. Yeah. That's a great line. <laughs> your death sits in that cage and she hears you. Yeah. Oof. Good stuff. Uh, so then Smedric shows Smendrick shows up and he's this bumbling magician who doesn't really know how to do magic uh, very well. Um, but he decides he's going to rescue the unicorn. Uh, and in order to do that, he needs to free her from her cage. And at first he attempts some magical spells to try to do this. And none of them work. He tries several different things. All of it fails. And then eventually he's just like, well, I guess I'll just use these keys. I stole. And I wanted to know if that's how that plays out in the book. Cause I thought that was very silly. Um, I, I thought it worked again. Just a step, we're establishing character here. The fact that he can't, uh, he doesn't know how to actually really do magic very well. Uh, also, there's a little illusion. I, again, I, I have a note about this later about how this book feels like it has lots of allusions to other pieces of um, uh, very popular like fantasy literature. Oh and yeah, stuff. for sure. Um, but this is one of them where he, when he produces the keys, he's like something about being a a, a pickpocket or a thief or whatever, which reminded me of. That's what they call Bilbo in mm -hmm. The Hobbit. Um, and so I wanted to know if that all that scene played out similarly, similarly in the book. Yeah, it does. Uh, he tries to free her. Um, first, he creates like an illusion that she's out of the cage, but she's really not. And then he accidentally shrinks the cage um, and then eventually pulls the keys out and says, like, you'll have to settle for a second rate pickpocket. Yeah. Um. He does make one attempt to free her in the book that does not make it into the movie. He summons some kind of creature to, like, break her out of the cage. And then it turns out that he can't control this this thing that he summoned. Oh. And the harpy does something that gets rid of it. And then the unicorn is like, good job. Now we owe our lives to the harpy. <laughs> Very good. Nice work. Fantastic. <laughs> It's uh, good. Uh, so uh, that, speaking of the harpy, uh, after as they're escaping, um, they start unlocking all the cages. And I think I don't remember if they unlock it or if, what. How the harpy? I think they unlock. Yeah, it. the unicorn frees the yeah. harpy. Yeah, they, like Smedric's unlocking some, I think, but the, the unicorn, or actually maybe it's the unicorn just using her horn to unlock. All yeah, the cages. she does all of it. Yeah, uh, unlocks all the cages, and the harpy gets out and uh, and just eats Mommy Fortuna, just chomps down, chows down. I wanted to know if that happened in the book. Yes, it does. Uh, although I, I prefer the additional detail in the book. Um, the movie just kind of cuts away. Yeah. Um, but I, I will read a short section from the book here. The harpy folded her wings and fell like a star, not at the unicorn, but beyond her, passing so close that a single feather drew blood from the unicorn's shoulder, bright claws reaching for the heart of Mommy Fortuna, who was stretching out her own sharp hands as though to welcome the harpy home. Then the harpy reached her, and she broke like a dead stick and fell. The harpy crouched on her body, hiding it from sight, and the bronze wings turned red. Mm. We do see that, like, well, we see the, like, because that's like the last shot of it we see is the harpy, like, like a yeah. vulture kind of like over its prey, or not its prey, but its food. 
uh, as it eats. So yeah, it, it evokes that a little bit, but it's definitely uh, more intense in the book for sure. Uh, so then they move on, and this movie kind of plays out not episodically, but it's very a very classic like adventure story where we yeah. kind of go. From, you have like, like little smaller vignette to vignette within yeah. the bigger adventure. Yeah, uh, and the next uh, kind of group they run into is they run into Captain Coley, 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 and uh, his his band of of adventuring friends. Uh, and they arrive and, and it comes up that, that, you know, kind of somebody mentions Robin Hood. I think the unicorn or Smendrick or somebody mentions Robin Hood. And uh, Captain Coley says there is no Robin Hood. Robin Hood is a myth. And he's like kind of dismissive of it. Um, and then he like doesn't like Robin Hood. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because when they're first introduced, I was like, oh, or is this like going to be ro- like a Robin Hood type character? Uh, and clearly that was on purpose because that's kind of the whole thing. I want to know if that whole interaction came from the book because I and like. It was interesting. I, I like the idea of this guy who's like aware of Robin Hood or but he calls it a myth. And I assume Robin Hood doesn't actually exist in this universe because he insists that he doesn't. I mean, it's kind of the same thing as in reality. Like it's, right. it's folklore, okay. but like maybe okay. it was based in reality at one point. Maybe. Yeah. But is Captain Collie and his ha- hatred of Robin Hood. Does that come from the book? Yeah, this is from the book. It is way more fleshed out in the book um and i did have this under better in the book before i moved it to answer your question but there's a lot more kind of like uh of thematic elements in this scene with captain coley and his band of outlaws Mm -hmm. um and what you get from the book is that he desperately wants to be robin hood and merry men but him, he and his band are really nothing like those legends. Yeah. But he's trying so hard to like transcend into legend himself. Yeah. That you can kind of get that a little bit in the movie. The way he talks, he's like, "Oh, Robin Hood's a myth. That doesn't like." You can tell he's kind of. It's kind of like a, a spiteful um, jealousy or something yeah. like that of of that idea. Um, it's, it is interesting. And I think it definitely plays into thematically, um, some of the stuff we're going to talk about later, uh, which is, you know, like meeting, not meeting your heroes, but like sort of the idea of in reality when, you know, Smedrick runs across these people and he's like, Oh, so he, I don't remember how Robin hood comes up initially. I don't remember exactly how, it, how um, somebody, well, in the book, and I, I think it's similar in the movie. So in the book, uh, Captain Cully makes his, uh, the minstrel sing a song about their adventures. Yes. Um, and it's, it's like a, the whole song is not in the book, but it's like a 17 stanza song about like his bravery. Right. Um, None of which actually happened, we yeah. find out. Um, and then somebody's like, no, tell about Robin Hood. Like, sing a song about Robin Hood instead. Right. Uh, but, I d- yeah, I think there's a there's an idea there thematically of the, you know, the the reality of, of expectation of these mythical characters versus what they kind of are in reality, which is yeah, like... Yeah, for sure. Captain Coley wishes he could be Robin Hood. And, you know, like, the idea, when, when our party comes across them, you know, I, I think they're kind of imagining they're going to be similar... To, to to like Robin Hood and the Merry Men or whatever, but they're they're just not yeah. because it's real. <laughs> it's not this <laughs> mythical, you know, magical thing. Does that scene end similarly where they like they all run off and chase them like the, the follow the ghosts of, yeah, of uh, Robin Hood that, that uh, <laughs> yeah, summons? Smendrick, yeah, he conjures like some apparitions of like the characters from Robin Hood, and yeah, like 
almost all of them then like chase them into the woods and they're like no wait we want to go with you interesting um but it is like it's it's a pretty funny scene in the book yeah um there's at one point like so Captain Cully's talking about like, oh, but you have to hear all the songs because at one point he he becomes convinced that Schmendrick is actually like like a collector, like somebody who like writes down folklore. Um, yeah. And like like in books um, and he becomes convinced of this and he's like, well, you have to hear all of our songs so that you can have them for your collection. Right. Um, because we are uh, Captain Coley and his gang and blah, blah, yeah. blah. So he's like trying to like yes. will he's the active, legend. Yes. He's of, actively you know. trying to will himself into legend. And yeah. then like one of the other guys is like, we actually aren't that merry. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, but they ultimately, one of the things they do uh, before they disappear is they tie Smendrick to a tree. Yeah. Uh, and, and leave him there tied to this tree. Uh, because he can't, you know, he's a sorcerer or whatever. And um, then Smendrick casts some sort of spell that turns the tree into a, a living, like, tree woman, like a, a tree wife, a tr- uh, an entwife, shall we say. Uh, but in the movie, she is uh, very buxom. And Smendrick's <laughs> face is just squeezed between two very large tree breasts. And boy, it's a thing. And I wanted to know if that thing came from the book. It it doesn't. Because somebody, um, some anime, whoever's idea that was, we know their thing now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, between that and the harpy. Yep. Yeah, we do. I I really could have done without the way the movie depicted the tree falling in love with Schmendrick because that is from the book. Okay. Like they tie him to the tree and it's not implied that he does something magical okay. to make the tree sure come to life. Yeah, he bo- like casts movie, a yeah. spell trying to get free. Oh. Uh, I think. Okay. But and the tree like the tree does fall in love with him, but it doesn't like anthropomorphize and and grow giant breasts. Okay. I cool. Good. Great. That was <laughs> woof. <laughs> it was something. Uh, that felt to me like a very uh of its time. Oh yeah. Um, There's animation like yeah. that. All all, all of that like eighties, seventies, eighties animation, just giant boobs everywhere. That's just what they just, <laughs> just a bunch of horny dudes drawing giant boobs on everything back then. <laughs> is all it was. So after they kind of escape, they then uh, run into uh, Molly Grew, who was with, who was the wife or girlfriend or partner. She's a partner of Captain Coley. Of Captain Coley. And she decides uh, that she's going to come with them, but she sees the unicorn and realizes it's a unicorn. Um, And uh, so she decides to join them on their journey. And there's this very like interesting scene where she, she kind of breaks down upon seeing this unicorn. uh, And I wanted to know if that scene came from the book. Yeah, it does. So that scene is from the book. Uh, it's pretty spot on. Um, the only thing that we're really missing is like some of the like kind of narration, like additional detail. Yeah. That scene. I love that scene. Yeah. It always it always makes me cry. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, it it never fails to astonish me that that scene was written by a man in his early 20s, <laughs> because I, I think 
and and I feel like a lot of women around my age would probably agree with me that that scene really cuts right to the quick of a, a very common experience of like feeling like you're past your prime mm-hmm. and that like everything has passed you by. Um, and so then when she's confronted with this this thing that she expected to have when she was in her prime, she gets mad about it. Yeah. But that scene is from the book. Uh, she does invite herself on their quest, ultimately, mm-hmm. um, partly because she has been waiting for her whole life to see a unicorn, uh, and partly because she's disillusioned with her life with Captain Cully. Yeah. Which would make sense because yeah. he's kind of just an obnoxious like wannabe. Yeah, and we <laughs> yeah. and we go back to that like thematic thing about like real life versus stories and how we all fit into this kind of narrative because what we have with Molly Grew is this person who fully bought into this romantic narrative about like, I'm going to run away with my lover and we'll be outlaws in the woods together and, and we'll live happily ever after and lead this merry life in the woods. And then what happens is that she ends up being cook and maid to a bunch of obnoxious men in the middle of the woods. And she does all of the labor and is responsible for everything because Captain Coley is busy trying to be Robin Hood. Yeah. And she never gets to be made Marion. Right. Yeah, no, it is. It's a really powerful scene. It's really. um, It's really it's really well written. And it is like you said, it is amazing that it could be regardless of gender. I think it's just amazing that somebody so young could have that kind of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. On that kind of thing. Like, again, regardless of of being a certain gendered uh, experience, I think everybody at least has some sort of. Anybody who has gotten to at least to a certain age has definitely had that uh, that confrontation with themselves at some point of what they expected their life to be or what they thought it would be versus mm-hmm. or, you know, what they wished for versus what it is. And, and um, you know, sort of that if the, even if that opportunity does show up later in life, it, it can be, you know, hard to confront and hard to like parse and it and it and it can definitely sort of like like you said kind of force you to reevaluate <laughs> a lot of beliefs that you've had before or about the world and stuff like that and in this instance it's it's interesting because it's 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 both a happy and sad situation like it's both a mm-hmm. um it's very bittersweet. Yeah, it's a, that's the yeah. happy thing. Bittersweet. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. It's a very bittersweet moment. Um, where it is this, you know, this sort of childhood dream coming true, but at a time where she feels like she's no longer sort of really capable of, um, embracing it fully, I guess would be, or like, you know, being a part of it fully because, you know, she's not young and spry and, and, uh, hopeful anymore or what have you. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is, it's again, for somebody again to, to, to be able to write a scene like that at, (laughs) like, I didn't realize he was. In his early twenties, when he wrote yeah, this, because that is young. that is that is pretty impressive. Because it is not, um, it's it's just something that would, it would be hard to imagine somebody that age would have a, enough. Of I mean, perspective I, know, on, I didn't have that perspective no. in my early twenties. Now I'm in my early thirties, and I'm like, me and my girl Molly grew. <laughs> <laughs> we we get it. <laughs> yeah, 
And even then, and, and you know, and that go, and even then, there's there's people in their 40s, 50s, etc., beyond who are like, well, you have no idea. Yeah, like it's the people our age, and it's you know, there's truth to that. It's it's you know, it is, it is yeah, it's a very interesting scene. So then they run into as they move on their adventure, they get they're nearing the castle now. They uh, come across well, uh, the castle erupts with this giant red, or somewhere near the castle erupts with this giant, like red, smoky, magical looking stuff. And then it turns into a giant red bull, which we have heard tell of from several different characters, uh, specifically the. Um, we heard about it from the butterfly. The butterfly. And uh, also from Mommy Fortuna. Yes. Uh, about this, this red bull who uh, chased all the unicorns uh, away and covered up their tracks or whatever. And initially, I thought this was going to be like, a, I thought it was going to be like a, a riddle, not a riddle, uh-huh. but I thought it was going to be like a real thing that there somebody was like calling, especially with the, it sounded like, especially when it was coming from the, um, the butterfly in the beginning, because mm. he speaks in like riddly, weird, like nonsense. I thought it was going to end up being something real. It was gonna be like a volcano and like the Red mm-hmm. Bull was like lava or something. But no, it's just like a magic Red Bull. And I wanted to know if this giant evil Red Bull came from the book. I assume it does because it's pretty terrifying and it reminded me a lot of a Balrog. Yeah, it is from the book. Uh, The Red Bull is uh, one of the primary antagonists. Yeah. I guess you could say King Haggard is probably the primary antagonist. Yeah, so I guess this is kind of a sub question. Is Is he not responsible for the bull? So, because that was what I assumed that he somehow did something to make that bull do what he yeah, was doing. This is left a little vague. Um, but the implication is that Haggard somehow has control over the bull. Yeah. Um, that was what I thought. Yeah. And he like commands the bull to herd all of the unicorns into the ocean okay that is what that's what i assumed yeah. it's never explicitly stated yeah. in the movie it's or not ex- it's not really explicitly stated in the book either yeah. like we don't i guess it is but like we don't know where that pirate power derives from yeah i guess that's yeah because like, it is like in his castle like it's yeah. in the base not basement but it's like seems to be in the bowels of his castle or whatever mm-hmm. just kind of hanging out so you could assume he was responsible for it somehow but yeah they don't go into like was no, it a spell he yeah, cast is no it a creature he found like, is it a yeah yeah why does he have power over this yeah. bull we don't know we don't even really know what the bull is no, yeah. exactly is it is it similarly described in the book as sort of like because in the movie it's like a, it, it seems like a smoke like it's like a red hazy like magical force you know it's like it's like nebulous it's not like a physical or at least it doesn't I mean it, it doesn't really seem it's like accompanied by whenever the bull shows up and runs around it's accompanied by all this like red you know hazy smoky looking stuff yeah which kind of makes me feel like it's it's not in fact like physical necessarily right let me see i mean i guess haze and smoke is physical but you get what i'm saying like it's <laughs> it's not nece- it's not like an actual bull it's like it's not some sort of like magical creature to me it feels more like some sort of spell mm-hmm. something <laughs> or something he was the color of blood not the springing blood of the heart but the blood that stirs under an old wound that never really healed a terrible light poured from him like sweat and his roar started landslides flowing into one another. His horns were pale as scars. Um, and I don't think it says like how big he is, but it is implied that he's very large because he like 
knocks over trees and yeah. like basically destroys the landscape right. as he's chasing her. Yeah. Okay. So it definitely, yeah, and that is interesting because it does knock over trees, you're right, and that does happen in the movie. So it is it is physical, at least in so much as it can interact mm -hmm. with the world. It's not just like passing through. It's not like a ghost necessarily. Because right. I was almost thinking of it more along the lines of kind of like a ghost or like a spirit or something. Yeah. It's kind of how it looks in the movie. Uh, but you're right. It does like physically. So it's like a poltergeist. Except it's a bull. Anyways. <laughs> a poltergeist. Yeah, a, a poltergeist. Or a bull rug, if you will. <laughs> um, anyways. Okay. So uh, it's chasing the unicorn around, uh, and they, they don't really know what to do. Uh, Molly's yelling at Smendrick to do something. He's like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, but eventually he does try something, and his, 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 his one attempt is to just go, magic, do as you will. And the magic channels through him, and it turns the unicorn into a hot lady. Yes. Who looks like Sailor Moon. <laughs> and I, wanna, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know if that is what goes down in the book. That is exactly how it happens in the book, right down to what the unicorn looks like in human form. Okay. I will read you uh, her description. At the feet of the red bull, there lay a young girl spilled into a very small heap of light and shadow. She was naked, and her skin was the color of snow by moonlight. Fine tangled hair, white as a waterfall, came down almost to the small of her back. Um, and then later we say uh, Molly smoothed the strange hair and and Schmendrick noticed on the forehead above and between the closed eyes, a small raised mark darker than the rest of the skin. It was neither a scar nor a bruise. It looked like a flower. Oh, OK. So, yeah, that is pretty much <clears throat> pretty much spot on. Yeah. To what we see in the film. All right. Uh, I did think it was interesting afterwards that that Molly kept yelling at him, like, why would you turn her? And he's like, I didn't do it on purpose. You heard me <laughs> say magic, do what you will. This is the universe. I don't know. I didn't. Uh, uh, so then we get into they do. Uh, they didn't leave. They're able to get away. The bull leaves them because not interested in the person and was interested in the unicorn. It leaves them and disappears. And they make it to the castle, which is uh, King Haggard's castle. And as they're in there, they kind of meet King Haggard, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you guys can hang out here as long as you want. Uh, they also meet Prince Lear, who is his son, um, who quickly falls in love with uh, Amalfia, which is the name of the unicorn as a human. Uh, and then they, uh, they're they kind of exploring the castle, doing whatever there for a while. And we're introduced in the film to this cat character that I love. That's a peg-legged, one-eyed cat walks around and then i didn't realize initially that it could talk all of a sudden it starts talking mm. and it, and it's i love uh i think it's molly grew maybe yeah it's it's sitting there talking to it and she's petting it uh, and the cat goes purr purr yes do that that'd be nice i loved this cat and i want to know if it was in the book there is a cat in the book the movie took some creative liberties with the cat character I don't care for the movie's version of You're so the cat. Wrong. You're so wrong about this. I think it, it was it was too out there for me. It was too much. No. Like that the accent and the eye patch and the, really it was the peg leg that sent it over the edge I love for me. The peg leg. It's the best part of the whole thing. It's adorable. I this is also though it, this is mixed up in my feelings about the way that Rankin Bass animates animals, which I don't care for. Well, to be fair, it's not them. 
It's, I mean, it's their movie, yes, but yeah. we talked about it in the prequel. This is a Japanese animation studio. Sure. They outsource all of the, yeah. Yeah. But it's like, yes. same style as like The right. Hobbit. Right, yes. Um, and the, the animals always just look like slightly off. Like, I, if you notice the cat's paws, they're, they don't look right. They're terrifying. And I, I just don't like it. That's fine. I, I mean, like you could it. not like the way they look. I, I just, I don't know. I thought this character was great. I love, I mean, it's in like one scene for 30 seconds. Yeah. I loved him. Uh, also in the book, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be a torty cat, mm. which yeah, that's, I really love. That would be better. I agree. You, yeah. I, no argument for me here. I'm just still like that cat a lot. <laughs> I, I did like per per. Yes, do that. That'd be nice. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you at least can admit to some extent that that cat's great. <laughs> uh, so then it is revealed as they stay there for a while that uh, the king, uh, King Haggard, has essentially kind of like captured all of the unicorns. And my initial interpretation, and then I realized afterwards that this is not the case, I don't think, was that he had, had like ushered them because he shows he's talking to Amalfia on this on the, like looking over the ocean. And he's like, yes, I have all that. And he's like trying to get her to admit that she's a unicorn. Yeah. But she doesn't. Um, and he's like talking about how he, he has all the unicorns and they're in the ocean. And he like gestures to the ocean and we don't really see anything. Uh, but. When we arrived at the castle, there were these handful of shots of the ocean, and you see narwhals. You see them swimming. Mm -hmm. 100% you see narwhals swimming. So there was, like, one shot of it. And so I thought the implication was going to be that he, like, captured them and, like, somehow the magic, like, turned the unicorns into narwhals, and that would at least be, like, a clever... Like, it would kind of work or whatever. And now he's keeping them in the ocean um, for his whatever. Um, but anyways, so... I bit. Couple questions. One, uh, is anything th with the narwhal is that is that at all true? Again, because then we don't ever see them as narwhals after that. I was like, okay, so I saw narwhals, but I guess that's not what's going on. So that's just one question. If there's anything you can add to that, more importantly, is my specific question is is like kind of the the crux of the plot here that King Haggard has essentially captured and kept all of the unicorns for himself because they're the only things that make him happy. So King Haggard does capture all the unicorns and he keeps them trapped in the sea because they make him happy even though he's clearly still yes, not happy. clearly not happy. Um, I never got the vibe that they turned into narwhals in the ocean, but I do kind of like that interpretation. Had they not shown one shot of narwhals earlier remember in the, that. It's earlier in the movie. It's I in a montage of other it. things happening. There is just a shot and you see narwhal heads popping out of the water swimming, uh -huh. like a handful of them, like more than one. But then the rest of the time, whenever he's talking about it, you don't see him. So I was like, oh, OK, I just assumed that that shot earlier with the narwhals was like priming us for what was coming. So when he like gestures to the ocean is like there. And I was like, oh, they he, they turned into narwhals or something. Mm -hmm. it's, no, it's not the case. Oh, I mean, no, it would appear not. But like I said, I do like that. Yeah. Um, and a part of the reason that I I like that is because uh, once upon a time, narwhal horns were sold as unicorn horns. Of course, yeah. Like to unsuspecting people getting grifted. Almost assuredly, they're in, in part of the reason the even the myth, mythos of unicorns exists in the first place, right? Maybe I would I don't imagine know. that part of what inspired unicorns in you know 
to be written about at all was people finding these weird yeah. horns. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I have no idea. Um, also, <laughs> if I may poke fun at yeah, you for fine. just a second. I don't know how it's spelled. Your original spelling of narwhal <laughs> in these notes sent me into outer space when I opened them up to look at them. <laughs> I would argue hoodies. my spelling makes perfect sense. Y'all, he spelled narwhal. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. G N A R W A L. Narwhals. Like gnome. No, like gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were the same root word. I will say I have to revoke my Redditor card because I should know how narwhal is spelled because of the dumb Reddit meme from a decade ago. Uh, there's a, there was a whole thing. It's it's the cringiest, dumbest thing ever. There was a whole thing back on Reddit back in the day. The way you would recognize another redditor, and again, I'm gonna say this: it's the cringiest thing in the <laughs> universe. Um, was that if you said the narwhal bacon's at midnight, that was oh. like a code phrase that you like were like a redditor. I see. And so I've seen that I've seen narwhal written, but my brain somehow forgot how it was spelled. <laughs> and it was like, OK, like gnarly narwhal. Perfect. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> I don't know why it wouldn't. Oh, be. God. Um, my mom also once asked me if narwhals were real. That's another fair question. That's a fair question. <laughs> you would think that you look at them, you go, that's not a real thing. You see a drawing of a narwhal, you're like, there's no way that's a real thing. It is, though. I know. It's I'm just saying thing. I can totally understand being like, that's not the name doesn't sound real <laughs> and they don't look real. <laughs> if you see a drawing of a narwhal, you're like, OK, that's that's somebody's like, what if I made a, a manatee into a unicorn? Like what? <laughs> you don't think you, you would assume it's not real. I get it completely. All right. Moving on. Uh, they didn't need to. Um, they've been in this castle for a while. They realize uh, that they need to get, they're trying to escape. I don't remember even where they're trying to. They're trying to get down to where the Red Bull is. That's right. They're trying to get to the Red Bull because they think somehow the Red Bull will like, they'll be able to get answers. For, I don't I don't understand necessarily what their goal of getting I mean, to the Red Bull is. I think that's but... just like the only logical next step for trying to find out what happened to the unicorns is to find the Red Bull. That's fair. Okay. So they're trying to get down there. They get, um. Uh, they they're so they they're at one point in this like dungeony area. There's this skeleton, like enchanted skeleton, who can talk, and 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 they've been chatted. Who we've seen a couple times in the movie, um, but they finally get to him here, and they're trying to figure out where how to get to the Red Bull, basically. And he he says he knows how to get there, but he won't tell him uh, unless I think he's he's gonna he he wants doesn't he want them to answer a riddle or something. What is the riddle part? Wasn't there a riddle? So the riddle actually came from the cat. The cat says, let me find it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Molly's talking to the cat and uh, the cat says she must take the king's way down to the bowl. And then Molly asks, do you know the way? Tell me the way. Tell me where we must go. And the cat says, when the wine drinks itself, when the skull speaks, when the clock strikes the right time, only then will you find the tunnel that leads to the Red Bull's lair. 
Okay. So that's the riddle part. Okay. So then they, but they go down to this, they find this skeleton and they're talking to him and I swear he says something, but then eventually he's like, Hey, I'll tell you if you can give me some wine. And, uh, Smendrick has like a, a, a bottle of like a, a flask of water, uh, and that it, he says he can turn into wine and he kind of turns away from the skeleton, drinks the water and then does a spell and then hands the skeleton or gives the skeleton an empty bottle and the skeleton, I guess, because he's a skeleton doesn't realize that it's not yeah. actually wine and drinks nothing and is like, yeah, that's the good stuff and tells them where that they got to go through the clock. So the whole thing does the, does Smendrix trick a, a tricky seed skeleton with fake wine? Does any <laughs> of that does all come from the book? Um, Yeah, I think in the book he actually does turn the water into very weak wine, but it's not super clear. And I think the scene works either way. Like, regardless of whether he actually turns the water into wine or not. Yeah. I I, th- I think the scene doesn't work very well either way. I just, that scene was a little confusing. It's, it's a little clunky. And, like, it was clunky. a little confusing like, in the book, what is too. he even trying to do here? What is he, okay. And I, get, I was like, and then I was just trying to piece, like, okay, so the skeleton, in the movie, he, like I said, he drinks the water and gives the skeleton nothing. And I'm like, so is the skeleton just because is the is it not a joke, but is the idea that the skeleton because he doesn't have you know mm-hmm. <laughs> soft tissue or anything, right, like literally know. can't know that it, it's not actually wine, but he seems to know other things, like he's talking, like I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like I don't necessarily know what I'm supposed to be like getting out of this interaction. Uh, again, it's fine, like it works, yeah. like I, I get it as sort of like a, a classic like. You know, you got to trick the the sphinx or whatever to get right. Like I get it. Yeah, you got to trick the gatekeeper. Yeah, trick the gatekeeper kind of deal. It's fine. It worked. I just felt a little clunky and like I wasn't exactly sure what was supposed to be playing out. Um, But it sounds like it's similar at least in the book. Yeah, it it was was a little clunky in the book too, in my opinion. There is uh, one line in the book that I wish had made it in the movie because it made me laugh Um, when Molly hands him the water. She's like, she hands him the water, turn it into wine. And he's like, turn water into wine. And she's like, what? It's been done. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was when they were going there in the movie, I was like, oh, okay. I see where they're going. Like when he's like, well, we got this thing of water. I was like, all right. Yeah. But they don't. Yeah. They don't make the, 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 the joke that you're kind of expecting in the movie, at least not from my memory. So he basically reveals after he gets the fake wine that if they need to go through the clock, there's this big, like, old broken grandfather clock uh, that is, like, essentially a portal to the the depths of where this Red Bull is. It also cracked me up every time they said Red Bull because I, I know the energy drink the whole time. Um, but anyway, so they, they rush through this clock and they end up in the in the tunnels below. First in, like, this, like, sort of ephemeral, like like void space or whatever yeah Yeah. and then eventually into these tunnels like the seemingly below the below the castle um but i want to know if that that like going through the the grandfather clock as like a portal to get uh to the red bull comes from the book because this is where i was again lots of things throughout this this movie kept giving me allusions to to other earlier fantasy properties like the grandfather clock kind of acting as the wardrobe from uh um the Narnia series. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the, the bulls kind of like reminded me of, of the Balrog a little bit mm-hmm. and stuff. Although there's, you know, uh, different ideas of what the Balrog even looks like, but there's a big red thing with horns, like, you know, chasing <laughs> things around. Uh, I talked about um, Smendrick uh, being like a thief kind of reminding me of Bilbo a little bit in, in certain regards. Uh, and there was, there was a, a handful of other things throughout 
that reminded me of again different things from lord of the rings narnia mm-hmm. other stuff like that uh and i wanted to know specifically if the clock portal came from the book yeah it does they do run through a clock to get to the red bull's lair um and i agree with you beagle is for sure standing on the shoulders of fantasy authors that came before him with yeah. this and what's interesting though is that reading the book i can also very clearly see his influence on more modern fantasy authors like Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. especially stylistically. Yeah. I, and I will say it's not even necessary. It didn't feel like sort of, I, I mean, standing on shoulder giants is the way to do it. To me, they, they almost felt more like specific, like cheeky references. Yeah. As opposed to like, that's fair. Like sort of like just using them, you mm-hmm. know, as, as opposed to like just taking them and being like, well, I'll use this. It more so felt like kind of like a, a winking reference to, Mm-hmm. At least a little bit to like things that clearly inspired him. It, it felt more like deliberate and obvious homages as opposed to like kind of covert stealing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I don't yeah. think it was covert. Stealing no, no, no I'm not saying that. I wasn't saying that you were implying that. I'm just saying like it. it yeah, it, it feels very clear to me that Beagle is not like. It, it doesn't feel accidental, I guess. Yeah. It feels very purposeful and like, again. Um, as homages as opposed to like just using those things. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so then as they get into the uh, the tunnels, there's a, they have a discussion. I didn't really set it up, but Prince. I mentioned it earlier that Prince Lear, who's the son of King Haggard, uh, falls in love with Amalfia, who is the human version of the unicorn. Uh, and they've they've kind of grown closer over the course of this. There was a whole music number and everything um, that we didn't talk <laughs> about. Uh, and then they, uh, but in the tunnels. They're basically discussing, and and Smedrick's like, "Look, man, she's a she's a unicorn, and she's gonna turn back into a unicorn at some point." Uh, and Prince Lear is like, "I love whom I love," and then Smedrick's like, "But I'm gonna change her back," and he cuts her on him off, and is like, "I love whom I love," and I was like, "Is this man? This man is really like, I will fornicate with a horse." Shut up. <laughs> she's not a horse. She's a unicorn. A unicorn. I will fornicate with How a unicorn. How rude. <laughs> Um, Anyways, I want to know if that that interaction came from the book because it made me laugh in the movie. Yeah, that yeah, it does. Um, Prince Lear is like, well, I love whom I love, and Schmendrick says, well, that's a really nice sentiment, but, <laughs> and he's like, no, I love whom I love. Yeah, I will say, like, it is one of those things that you know, it's fun, easy to joke, make a joke about, like, oh, okay, this guy wants to get with a horse, but the, uh, it is definitely. There's a nice message behind it because it is in this weird universe where this horse is a sentient, not sentient, but or beyond even beyond sentient is a literal like thinking. Um, what is the yeah sentient? I guess sapient, whatever the word is, mm-hmm. um, creature that can interact completely on the same intellectual level as humans, if not beyond what. Humans. Yeah, there's not. She's not really an animal. There's no. not really anything animal other about than her. like physical form. Yeah. Um, there is an idea there of, you know, uh, that underlies that of love transcending like typical sort of classical or like uh, societally enforced norms. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and again, it, it does. It does kind of play out, shake out in a, a little bit of a strange way. Uh, because it is like just when you look at it, it just looks like a horse. 
But uh, yeah, it is because we talked about this a lot in when we reviewed way back on like uh, on a bonus episode when we talked about the shape of water. Mm-hmm. Kind of a similar idea of like this, you know, exploring um, sort of non traditional relationships through the use of complete like fantasy scenarios Mm -hmm. and using that to kind of bridge and approach the idea of like, again, breaking down uh, or breaking away from just sort of um, traditional male, female. This is the acceptable pairing of Mm -hmm. people or what? Anyways, I don't know. So then after that, uh, Amalfia basically decides that she wants to stay a human because she does also love Prince Lear uh, and she wants to stay with him, but then ultimately is transformed back into a unicorn so that she can save the day. And I wanted to know if that all played out similarly, because I thought that was an interesting sort of turn of events where she's like, no, I'm going to stay human. I didn't really know where the ending was going to go before it all happened. I wasn't sure, like, okay, is she going to stay human? I don't know if I like that ending. Uh, is she going to... Uh, I, I just want to know how it plays out and what your feelings are of all of that. Um, It, it does It does play out the same way. She says she doesn't want to be changed back. Um, She wants to stay with Prince Lear, but ultimately she is changed back to a unicorn, and she does have to face down the Red Bull. Uh, finally, does the prince sacrifice himself to save? Uh, he like jumps and he's like, no, I got to be a hero. And he jumps in front of the bull uh, to save Amalfia or the unicorn at one point. Uh, and the bull hits him, like just kills him essentially. Uh, but then she, the unicorn is able to like resurrect him with her unicorn magic. And I want to know if, if the prince sacrifices himself. He does. Uh, and then he does later get resurrected. The, the entire climax plays out the exact same as it does in the book. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I have a handful more questions in Lost in Adaptation, so let's get into those. Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way. Was it lost? Yes. Yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible. At the beginning, during the, the, the very opening scene with the hunters, they're kind of walking through the forest, riding through the forest, and they mention that they can't hunt here, or there's no point hunting here because there's no animals, because there's a unicorn. And I wasn't sure what that meant and what, why, why a unicorn would stop there from being animals to hunt or what's going on there. Can you explain? So it's not that there are no animals to hunt. It's that because the forest is under the unicorn's protection, it's much harder to find animals okay. to hunt. That makes sense. I feel like that was not what they said. <laughs> I feel like they very specifically, I, maybe I'm just misremembering, but I felt like the way it was said implied that there just were no animals other than the unicorn there. Mm-hmm. And I guess what they were that, again, I, obviously it, it, what you're saying makes sense. Like, yeah, that they, you, when the unicorn is around, it's essentially like there's some sort of magic, of, you know, permeating yeah. the forest. And so you can't like find any animals to kill or whatever. But something about the way they said it made me think that there literally were not other animals in that forest because there was a unicorn there. And I thought that was very strange, but that's not the case. So, okay. Cleared up. Moving way forward uh, towards the end. We, when they get to the castle, we kind of get like a montage of stuff. And at one point, Prince Lear uh, mentions that he has done all this stuff to impress Amalfia He's like talking about how he slayed a well, we see him slay a dragon, but then like he's talked about all these other things he's done and he has all these medals and all this stuff he's done to try to impress her 
and none of it's working. And in the movie, I couldn't tell how long they were supposed to have been there Mm -hmm. and or how long these events were supposed to have taken place over because it kind of seems like a handful of days in the movie. But I assumed based on that conversation that it was probably like weeks, if not months. And so I was wondering if the book clarifies that. The book does clarify that astonishingly uh they're they're there all winter okay. plus a, at least a little bit of autumn okay so months like a yeah. handful of months for sure okay that makes sense yeah and that's kind of again the movie i think the movie does fine because it does imply that like yeah again, we you, get like a, t- a passage of time montage a little bit yeah i don't of. think i don't think the montage does a good job of that i think that conversation does a good job of that <laughs> the montage could have been over the course of a, a week That's like fair. I, yeah at least from my memory of what we see in the film most of it could have been over the course of like a week but the him describing all these events he's done yeah it's like okay well that had to have been much longer than just like a week or something uh unless he's literally nonstop, you know hunting dragons like 24 hours a day for mm-hmm. but yeah no that makes sense okay and then my last question for this segment uh is that uh, the song we I, I mentioned earlier the sort of love story song uh, or this might is this the love story song no i think it's it's her wistful song yes before this for the love song uh we get this song where uh, amalfia sings about being a woman she's like now that i'm a woman blah 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 explains all this stuff uh and i was like okay well this song feels like it's very clearly trying to sell the idea that this is all an allegory for like growing up or becoming a woman uh kind of like finding your place in the world are these the themes that you felt like the book was presenting because the movie i think does an okay job of it but it really like mostly tries to hammer it in this one song i feel yeah, like um the the song is a, a, a little on the nose yeah um so the last unicorn explores a few themes but i think most people would agree with me that the main theme is loss of innocence and i think you could interpret that as moving from childhood to adulthood but i think what the book is going for is a little bit broader Um, More about the idea that once you've experienced something, you're fundamentally changed and you can't go back to being who you were before that experience. Which often comes coupled. Which often comes coupled with moving from childhood to adulthood. But you can also experience that at different points in your life. Absolutely. So the unicorn is immortal and quite old, but because of what she is she has not experienced life the way that humans do. By the end of the story, she's experienced fear, mortality, love and heartbreak, and regret. Yeah. She can go back to her forest, but she can never go back to being who she was before she left the forest. Yeah. That version of her is simply gone. Yeah, which she outright says basically at the end of the film. Another theme that the text explores, which we've talked about a little bit, is the idea of stories versus real life um, and like the roles that individuals can play within stories, as well as this idea of kind of being set on a path and needing to fulfill a role within a story and like having to see it through to the end. So you mentioned um, Prince Lear and Lady Amalthea like kind of end up not necessarily wanting to fulfill their roles right, yeah. in Spe- the story. Specifically, yeah, I was talking about her more yeah. so than him, but yes, I was talking about her like not, you know, not wanting to go back to being a unicorn, yeah. wanting to stay a human to be with him. But in order to set things right, they have to. 
um, she has to face the Red Bull and he has to commit to the role of the hero in order mm, to help mm-hmm. her do that. Right. They can't pretend to not be what they are. They can't escape from that kind of um, role within yeah. the story. Yeah. And I, I I do think the movie tries, but it's just not able to explore these themes as fully as the book can. And it, it, it does kind of hammer them into like a couple specific points. Yeah. And I, I will say for sure uh, in regard to like the Prince Lear and that him not wanting, to, I, I didn't get remotely that he didn't want to fulfill or like was, mm-hmm. you know, felt forced into fulfilling the role of a hero versus, and didn't want to, unless I'm just, it's possible well, I'm forgetting scenes. Initially but. when she's like, I don't want to turn back into a unicorn. I want to stay with you. And he's like, I, I want to stay with you too. Yeah. Um, but he realizes much more quickly than she does that they can't get out of these like roles that they're in. Right. Yeah. I felt like the movie did. I'm just saying, I don't think the movie did a good job of that mm-hmm. for him. At least like, again, yeah. I didn't, I didn't get the vibe that he, I don't know, like the, at the end when he's like, Oh, I need to be a hero. I just felt like his, his quote unquote character arc or whatever, his, his character journey felt I didn't yeah, feel his, like I understood why he needs to make this decision at the end. I'm mostly like, what? erased from the movie. Yeah, I guess that was my confusion. Because he has more, like, while they're at the castle, there's more with him, like, learning about what it actually means to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Because initially, he's like, well, I, I'm going to be a hero, and that means that I go out and I slay dragons and right. I kill ogres. But ultimately, what he has to learn is that being a hero can mean, like, sacrifice. Right. Okay. And it, the movie does say all that stuff, I guess, I, or some of that, at least. Mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know. I did, It didn't it didn't connect with me. Her version of it, I've made a lot more, like, I felt a lot more obvious like that that that's what the movie was getting at you know with her not wanting or you know not wanting to like become a unicorn again and have to go confront the bull and all this sort of stuff and just wanting to stay with him um that being said even that felt a little flimsy and weak at times and we'll get into this a little bit more shortly uh towards the end but uh yeah it's yeah my other my other question though in regards to the ending is what do you feel about or how do you feel about the decision, or not the decision, the idea in the narrative that she do, that she wants to stay human? I guess it's just, it's. It, I thought that was a weird choice. I guess part of it is that in the movie it feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere because her relationship with him isn't very well fleshed out. Mm-hmm. And like, all, I just felt like her decision all of a sudden, not decision, but at the end of the movie when she's just kind of like, I don't want to be a unicorn. I want to be, I, I want to stay human and be with Prince Lair. I was like, do you really? Like, it just well, felt like, I was like, well, I you know, know, I think her whole arc is finding courage and like learning to be brave. Really? Cause I feel like she starts pretty brave. I don't know that I, maybe again, it feels like a flaw of the movie. Cause to me, it doesn't, when she's like runs off on this adventure feels like kind of a brave thing. She's like, I got to go find the unicorn. Like, it doesn't feel like she's struggling to like act or do things up until the end, at least to me in the movie. Again, it, it doesn't feel like she's, she's ever struggled to like act or, or do things. I don't know. 
Well, okay. So she does initially struggle with whether or not to leave the forest in the book. She okay. struggles with it a lot. Yeah, in the movie, she just immediately runs off. Yeah. Um, and it specifically says in the book, the unicorns are not meant to make decisions. Okay. Um, and I, I think what it is, where it gets a little bit confusing and what gets lost in the adaptation of this is that she has to learn fear first. So she goes through this whole journey and she learns what fear is and she learns what mortality is. And then coming out on the other end of that, she has to not relearn because she wasn't she wasn't necessarily cowardly or brave initially. She just was. OK, that that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I think maybe then the movie's failing is the middle part of the because, yeah, I can definitely see interpreting the beginning more of like a as like a naivete or something as yeah. like she runs off without really thinking through it or whatever to just go find the other unicorns or see if they're out there. Uh, and then, you know, kind of learning and growing and becoming for, for being forced to act and like be the hero at the end and, and be brave or whatever. But I feel like I guess. The, to me, I guess maybe it feels like the movie was lacking in developing the middle part of that journey mm-hmm. where she like either has a realization about the. I just never vi- invi- I never like interpreted her character as per- to be fair. Once she becomes human, she kind of just doesn't have character to me. Like she yeah. in the movie, she's kind of just like an empty vessel. It feels like she well, I mean, say yeah, she, she is because she she forgets who she truly is. So she does become kind of this blank slate in a sense. Okay, I'm forgetting that she she forgot. That yeah, I the longer that she's human, the more they do she say forgets. That. Okay. Okay, they do say that. I think part of the problem is, or at least on my, is that this movie, I think, is, we'll talk about this in a minute, but I think there's so much crammed into 90 minutes mm-hmm. that I, I there's little details like that. And so it's so truncated and it moves so quickly that there's some little details where it's like one line is meant to like sort of explore an entire aspect of like what is happening with yeah. the character in like literally one line. And I think that's part of my struggle with sort of understanding or, or like seeing the like sort of character journeys that the movie was trying to portray. It's because so much of the, the like heavy lifting of that, of the, those character arcs and stuff are done in like literally just like seconds worth of dialogue Mm-hmm. Like here and there. And I think that might be why I'm struggling with feel because again, once she becomes I, I I do now that you say it, I do remember the the line or somebody mentioning that she forgets she uh, the longer she's human, the more she'll forget that she's a unicorn. But there's just it feels like there's a lot of details crammed in so quickly that I just I I'm like I lost track of like what <laughs> what is even going on necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely would have I think I would have benefited from a second viewing for sure. Um, in, in that regard, because it just feels, and it's the note I have later and might as well say it now, the thing that was just the most obvious to me in this whole thing is, is that I could see all the pieces of yeah. the story and I felt like I, it was being like speed read to me, mm-hmm. like by like the micro machines guy. 
or something. Like, I just, like, I was like, I can see all of the pieces of this story and what works about it. I see how this would all be fantastic. But man, it's just truncated in a way that I don't know if it works. Mm-hmm. It's still very fun. I still enjoyed the movie overall, but it just so much of the like the journey and the character growth and the progression of everything just felt so truncated and clunky in the film that I had a hard time even grasping at times certain things like what I was supposed to what what I was supposed to be getting out of watching it other than like a fun fantasy adventure, which it still is. So it does work at least on that surface level, (laughs) but there's just so much again. But like I said, as I was watching, I could see that there was more under the surface and it was, uh, yeah. All right, let's find out what Kitty thought was better in the book. You like to read? Oh yes, I love to read. What do you like to read? Everything. Uh, so I mentioned that the Midnight Carnival was pretty pretty dang close to what we get in the book. There's a couple elements missing that I think are interesting. Um, one is that one of the creatures is a spider. And it's just, just like a normal spider. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mommy Fortuna has disguised her as uh, Arachne. Um, from like from Greek mythology, mm-hmm. was turned into a spider. Uh, but the interesting thing with that is that the spider, unlike the other animals, has bought in and mm-hmm. like believes it. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, another element that was missing from the Midnight Carnival was Ellie, which is kind of a character that Mommy Fortuna plays um, as like part of the sideshow, like as one of the attractions. The most terrifying creature of all old age mm. just named ellie she's like an old yeah. woman just yeah she's an old woman but she uses her magic to create this like air of like this very deep like terror hmm. um and it's one of the first things that introduces the unicorn to this concept of like existential dread oh, okay um also while we're at the midnight carnival um the movie kind of alludes to this but the unicorn uh is unable to touch the iron bars of the cage which is a big part of the reason that she can't get herself out because mm. she literally can't touch them um which is a, a reference to like celtic folklore and like the the idea of fey and like iron and you can't touch iron that's also that goes back even further well yeah. maybe not further i mean I guess that wouldn't be further back, but um, famously in the Bible, iron chariots are like the only thing that can defeat uh, God. <laughs> there's like a, there's a, there's uh, there's a the one specific passage where some army has the has God on their side, mm. uh, Yahweh specifically, and um, they're only defeated or they're defeated because the enemy has chariots of iron and there's. Some implication that. that I don't remember what don't book it's from. I don't remember. <laughs> There's some, but the implication is that somehow iron is also huh. like God, literal like Christian God is also like is is, is uh, iron is a weakness of the Christian huh. God. Yeah, God is Fay confirmed. I mean, it's all <laughs> comes from it the same com- mythology. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it all intertwines. Um, another little detail that I like, um, the the first outlaw that we meet, the one who grabs Schmendrick 
His name is uh, Jack Jingly. And he's called Jack Jingly because he wears this like makeshift homemade chain mail that's made out of like any little bits of metal things that he could find, like all strung together into the shape of a shirt. Interesting. Because, yeah, in the movie, that guy just has bells. Yeah. On a like a like a a sash. Like yeah. he just has like a uh like a har not a hauberk, but well, yeah, he has like a, a a belt around his chest that just has jingle bells on it. Yeah. No, he has like his his own homemade recycled chain mail in the Sweet. book. Um as moving forward, I one thing that the movie completely left out that I really wish it hadn't was the town of Hagsgate. So in the book, before they get to uh, King Haggard's castle, they have to go through the town that is right by the castle. And the town is called Hagsgate. Mm-hmm. And there's some really biting social commentary through Hagsgate. So the history of the town of Hagsgate is that when King Haggard was building his castle, he got it. He had it built by a witch, mm-hmm. which is why it's so insane. Right. Um, so he has this witch build his castle for him. And then when it's done, he doesn't want to pay her. Mm-hmm. Typical. Um, so the witch goes to Hagsgate and like appeals to the citizens and says, hey, will you guys petition your king? To pay me right. for the work that I did. And they're like, mm, We're good. we don't really want to get involved. Uh, yeah. This is not really like our fight. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the witch curses the town of Hagsgate. Um, Was it called they... Hagsgate prior to the, her cursing it? or? <laughs> I, uh, oh. No, I think it's, it's Haggard Hagsgate. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not yeah. Hag like a witch. Okay. Um, I think that makes sense. There's no indication that it was ever called anything else. Okay. Um, so, but the curse I think is really interesting because she curses them that they will be an extremely prosperous town for as long as King Haggard rules. Uh. But as soon as his rule is over, they're going to be trash heap basically. Um, so they spend all of this time living in fear of the day that King Haggard's rule is ended. And there's also a prophecy that King Haggard will be brought down by one from Hagsgate's town. Mm. So they go on this like whole crusade, like they never welcome people in. They don't let strangers move there and they don't have children. Mm. Because everyone in the town has already agreed, well, none of us is going to go do it. Right. So if we don't have any children. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, there was a baby abandoned outside. And they all just, like, leave this baby outside. And then in the morning, it's gone. Guess who the baby was? Schmendrick? Prince Lear. Come on oh, now. <laughs> dang it. No, not Schmendrick. Um so they end up kind of like being their own undoing, right? Because they wouldn't, nobody would take in this baby. Nobody would take care of it. Prince Lear right. ends up being yeah, the one to 
That makes sense, yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I forgot the, there is that one. There's like, again, my issue. There's like one line where the king is like, oh, he's not my son. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And there's like an allusion to the fact that he found him or whatever. But I forgot about that because, again, it's one line about a million details. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Um, and then later on, after um, after King Haggard's death, they come. They all come back through Hagsgate, which is now in ruins because of the curse. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I forget who I think either Prince Lyrish Mendrick asks them about like the Red Bull and the unicorns and they're like oh yeah um we we did know that the Red Bull was doing that we we saw him doing that and they're like and you didn't say anything or yeah. like try to stop it and they're like well it's not wasn't really our business yeah um so there's a lot of commentary there on like cowardice and aligning yourself with evil through inaction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this that kind of idea of like screw you, I got mine. Yeah. Which and we remember that he's writing this post World War II. Right. As well. Yeah. So yeah, which definitely, yeah. Um, so we talked about how Schmendrick uh turns the unicorn into a human girl, and that action is um foreshadowed earlier in the story he tells her a story about another wizard who was his mentor that turned a unicorn into a man in order to save it from hunters Hmm. um, which i think is interesting Uh, also speaking of schmendrick his entire backstory is missing from this movie yeah uh he is actually very old He's like oh. functionally immortal. Okay, well, yeah, um, classic wizard. Yeah. You know. Well, he's he's not supposed to be. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so he was such a bad wizard that his aforementioned mentor was like the guy. That's King Haggard's. No, no, that was just another wizard who knew okay. him. Okay, they just knew him. That's yeah. Right. He wasn't okay. No, but his so his mentor is like. You're not going to age until you figure this out. Oh, okay. So him through him helping the unicorn and like managing to turn her back into a unicorn like lifts that curse and he's able to like move forward as a true wizard and like continue with his life. Yeah. Def- again, this ties back into the themes we were talking about yeah. of like um you know uh uh well it's it's funny what's the term for that uh arrested development mm-hmm. you know and, and ties back into the same thing you know similar ideas with the unicorn and like growing up in the loss of innocence and kind of like a, a flip a counter flip to that is being stuck in your youth because of yeah. an, an inability to move uh past sort of your you know youthful pursuits or whatever and stuff like that so yeah uh, it's briefly mentioned in the movie that King Haggard only keeps four men at arms. Uh, yeah, in it's his like castle. it's his council or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we don't ever see them or meet them in the movie. We do interact with them in the book. Uh, and Molly makes friends with all of them. And they're all like these really old men who only work there because they're too old to find work anywhere else. Um, but they're all like super sweet and nice. Mm hmm. Um, and then at the end of the story, they magically turn young again. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, my last note here for better in the book. Does Molly start a polycule? <laughs> <laughs> With these young, handsome men at arms. 
Damn, I wish. Um, no, she rides off with Schmendrick oh, okay. at the end, uh, similar to what we see in the movie. Uh, they like ride off together. Yeah. Um, but at the very end, um, so they're riding off, and uh, Lear has gone back to his kingdom. Um, and so, and then Molly and Schmendrick come upon uh, a damsel in distress. And she's like classic damsel stuff. She's like, my my evil uncle murdered my father and is trying to force me into marriage to him. And Schmendrick is like, do I have a guy for you? <laughs> and sends her after Lear. Amazing. Fantastic. All right. Let's find out what Katie thought was better in the movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. Um, so the book starts off with the unicorn when we like kind of get to know her a little bit before the hunters arrive. But I liked that the movie flipped that a little bit mm -hmm. and we start off with the hunters. We do see like the unicorn shadow. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I liked that we start off with the hunters talking about how there are no unicorns anymore before like the full reveal mm -hmm. of the unicorn. Yeah. A movie skips over, or I guess changes, how the outlaws actually get a hold of Schmendrick. Um, so what happens in the book is that they come across this town that's, like, very prosperous, and uh, they're, like, feasting there, and Schmendrick is, um, like, doing tricks for them and stuff. And then these these outlaws show up, and the outlaws are paying tribute to like the government in the town to like leave them alone mm -hmm. and they end up like taking Schmendrick as a captive mm. at that time. It's, it's, I guess thematically relevant as far as like some of our understanding of the outlaws go, but it's kind of an unnecessary scene mm -hmm. overall. So I did not mind that change. Uh, another scene that the movie skipped is this brief little like, intercut scene where we see a prince who was later revealed to have been prince lear but that's not super important and a princess fulfilling an old custom before they can get married where the princess tries to call a unicorn to her mm -hmm. so we're kind of adding to like the world building overall but again in the grand scheme of things i get why it was cut like those two scenes that i just mentioned if you're going to cut things those ones probably make the most sense to cut. Yeah. I was really glad that the movie skipped out on Schmendrick telling uh, Amalthea that she shouldn't be upset because at least she's a hot girl. <laughs> upset about what? Uh, about being turned into oh, being a human. Oh, being turned into a human. Oh, okay. He's like, well, you have a really nice shape, though. <laughs> like, okay, guy. Okay. Uh, good. Um, and I, I really liked the joke in the movie, uh, where Schmendrick says, uh, that King Haggard was making him juggle teacups all night mm -hmm. and he's like teacups with tea in them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was fun. All right. Let's find out what the movie nailed. As I expected, practically perfect in every way. The movie gets the design of the unicorn, right? Which I love. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a proper medieval unicorn right there. It's got cloven hooves. Mm -hmm. It's got a lion's tail. 
that's a unicorn. And a really long horn. Yes, and a really long horn. That's way longer of a horn than I, used, I normally would yeah. expect to see. Well, and it's, it's pretty common now to just depict unicorns as like a horse with yeah. a horn, yeah. basically. Um, but there, they, there are other differences between horses and unicorns, right. strictly speaking. Uh, the scene uh, right after she sets out on her journey where there's a farmer that thinks she's a mare. Mm-hmm. And she gets, like, super offended by it. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> when she first meets Schmendrick and he introduces himself as Schmendrick the Magician, he has a, a little line uh, that I love. He says, you won't have heard of me. <laughs> yeah. He is very self-deprecating. Yeah. Um, I love the line um, when they're escaping from the carnival and Schmendrick is like, run, you need to run. And she's like... You must never run from anything immortal. It attracts their attention. That's good advice. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, and then later, right after that, um, he when he asks to come with her, and she's like, well, you could have asked for something else as, like, your reward for helping me escape. Um, but yeah. I guess I couldn't grant what your true wish is, which we don't know what yeah. his true wish is yet. Um, and he's like, that's all right. Don't worry about it. And she says, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's good. Uh, everything about like King Haggard and the castle and all that, I think the movie nailed, uh, it's just described as like this awful, dark, dank, cold place. Yeah. Uh, I love Prince Lear's line (laughs) when, when King Haggard dismisses his, his old, his old wizard and Prince Lear's like, I'll write you a reference. Yeah. I I, I chuckled at that. That was a good one. (laughs) Um, everything with Lear complaining to Molly that Amalthea isn't impressed by him slaying dragons and ogres, uh, typical hero stuff, but it doesn't do anything for her. Mm -hmm. The cat has one line that we haven't talked about yet that I love. Uh, and he says, no cat anywhere ever gave anyone a straight answer. This is true. Which is very cat. Very, very true. <laughs> uh, Lear does try writing poems for Amalthea. Mm-hmm. That's a little fleshed out a little more in the book. Uh, we see some of his poetry in the book, and it's pretty awful. Yeah. Um, but then they do uh, bond over uh, her having a nightmare, and then they sing together. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like the movie emphasizes the romance between them in a more like obvious surface level way. Yeah. Like I, I don't think we ever see them kiss in the book. Mm, okay. And we do see them kiss in the movie. I don't think we do. Yeah. Uh, we talked about Amalthea forgetting who she is. Mm-hmm. That is from the book. Um, also the line, a happy ending cannot come in the middle of a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of one of her final lines, um, which sums up a lot of the themes uh no unicorn was ever born who could regret and now i do i regret yeah i I actually had one more question i just remember because i made it when i was writing the intro quote i wanted to know is this line in the book uh there are no happy endings because nothing ends yes okay i figured it was it sounded like a book line but i just i wasn't 100 percent positive so yeah all right we got a handful of odds and ends before we get to the final verdict I really dig the opening sequence, the opening credit sequence in this movie where we're kind of going in and out of like a medieval tapestry mm-hmm. with like the unicorns and, and all the other 
slightly off animals yeah. <laughs> that you see in, in medieval tapestries. Yes, yeah. Because sure. they didn't know how to draw animals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of the art style, this is where I have my note about kind of the overall look of this movie. And while it's maybe not as like well-defined as Disney stuff, um, I think there's like a depth and a whimsy to the style of the film that is really interesting. Uh, like it has a ton of personality. Yeah. Um, it's very character filled style. Yes. Like the, a, a, in a way that some of Disney stuff lacks, mm-hmm. but it's interesting because the thing that I think it, it was almost like this weird mixture. I, if they should have combined these two studios and they could make incredible <laughs> stuff because what I thought the, this movie did really well was create atmosphere and stuff in the world mm-hmm. and like create these really cool looking like visual like landscapes and like it all has a very distinct style and feels really cool and interesting and like the creepy stuff's really creepy and the I don't know there's something about it that just feels really interesting but this movie's weakest part in my or weakest element of the animation in my opinion is the characters and specifically, really specifically, the characters like facial animations and mm-hmm. portrayal of emotions and stuff like that is really lacking. Whereas Disney is like, that's their bread and butter is like making, you know, animating character faces that are immediately like completely engrossing and, and feel like you can identify every single moment to moment, every single emotion that character is experiencing. Yeah. Uh, they're very expressive faces on their on their characters, you know, all the way back for a long time. Um, whereas this, uh, they're just not as emotionally resonant. The characters in this, like, I feel like a lot of times there's one an instance that really like stuck out to me as like a good example of this was um, when the unicorn is being chased by the bull in that mm-hmm. first big interaction where well, before he turns her into a human, Smendrick and Molly are just standing there and. They're supposed to be, I think, like upset, scared, yeah, panicking, whatever. And they, there's like no emotion on, there. like they're just standing there. And it, there's a lot of moments like that where, and, and and it's not to say that there's never moments that they have like good moments, like face, you know, animations or, or emotionally like resonant facial animations. It's just a lot of the times there wasn't, and it felt like I was staring at blank slates in a really cool setting. Mm-hmm. Whereas Disney, it's always like really evocative of um, emotionally resonant, you know, characters, faces and stuff set against often sometimes backdrops that are not quite as like interesting. And I guess yeah. it could just be a matter of what the studios focus their time on. Like potentially right. you spend a lot of time creating these really cool, like see, and again, this is not to say that Disney doesn't have plenty of like really cool, um, you know, it depends on the movie. Depends on the movie a lot. I guess part of it is I'm comparing this very specifically to our most recent movie, which is Robin Hood, mm-hmm. because we do have a lot of animals and stuff. And in Robin Hood, the style of that movie was very boring to me. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that's also earlier, but it's not a lot earlier. It's like ten years earlier. Um, the style of that was very boring to me, but the characters are very expressive. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, the style is very interesting and cool, but the characters are like kind of like stone-faced like meh yeah well uh, to me the difference in like the background work between something like this and like your typical disney movie is that i think disney movies tend to be very clean yeah like it's all very like kind of perfect yes Uh, and very curated looking whereas 
something like The Last Unicorn, um, stuff that comes out of like other animation houses, it feels a little bit like grittier. Yeah, feels messier and yeah. And, and again, I think that's what I mentioned early on in this in this topic or this point was that like there's personality in yeah. the backgrounds of this it, movie. Yeah, it feels like less curated and less styled. But more stylistic. Yes. 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 Less style, but more style. Yeah. No, I agree completely. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and yeah, like I said, I, I think the biggest thing was just so many times I couldn't if if I didn't hear. And, and I actually think this might have because another note I had um, is that I, I actually thought the performances in this were kind of bad other mm-hmm. than Mia Farrow. I thought Mia Farrow was really good. I thought Christopher, Christopher Lee was really good. I thought Jeff Bridges was terrible as Prince Lear. And I thought Smendrick was like good, really good sometimes and really bad other times. And I think part of that is that Smendrick and um, Lear are doing like very specific performances. And I feel like when we don't, you don't have the visual cue of what their character is trying to express. Yeah. The, the audio, the vocal performance, it, feels mismatched oh for fe- sure and it feels yeah. really weird yeah and i think that was part of the reason that i had uh a problem with them and it's funny you know it, it doesn't surprise me that mia farrow's character i thought worked better in that regard because she's mostly a unicorn so i'm not looking for quite the same like depth hum- of human expression emotion. Yeah, yeah on the <laughs> like when we're listening to her talk that being said i still think think in general if like if you weren't even looking if you were listening to this as like a radio play or like you know like an audio book i just think there's so many times where jeff bridges and uh, alan arkin's characters i just felt it, they their lines felt really flat and and devoid of like the context of the scene they were in in a mm-hmm. way that felt some of that's on purpose with smendrick for sure because he's kind of like a dry like sarcastic but like I don't know. There was a lot of times where I was like, that's a terrible delivery. Um, whereas I thought Mia Farrow's like every delivery I thought was great. Like yeah. super good and compelling. Uh, same for Christopher Lee. I thought all of his stuff was really good. Um, but yeah, I had really mixed bag on the vocal performances. And I, I do think that ties into the lack of expression on the characters. I think amplifies. No. Yeah, that. for sure. It definitely doesn't help. Yeah. Um, uh, I mentioned th- this animation style. I have such mixed feelings about <laughs> Because it is so, like, full of character and personality. Um, But also, like, the way that they do animals, they're just, just just slightly off in a way that is very unsettling to me. And that works fine when it's, like, a fantasy animal. Mm -hmm. But when it's just, like... A normal animal i don't i don't want to be like unsettled and put off by like a normal cat or like i don't i don't know it's if, interesting i, I don't know if I you noticed get... any of the animals as she's leaving the forest yeah. and they all look weird yeah they do look weird i it's interesting because i did not find the cat unsettling or off-putting i thought he looked like a grumpy like weird cat like in a way that made sense for the character of that cat, like an old peg-legged cat in a castle. Yeah, he looks weird and off-putting, but like if he should. Like, I guess. But I, I don't, yeah, I do agree that there's definitely a distinct style. That doesn't bother me. I kind of like it, but I could see, it's definitely like a subjective taste thing with how the, the, the animals and stuff look. Um, I just feel like 
I feel like the off-puttingness of, and, and I think this goes for their human characters too, honestly. Yeah. Like the human characters are also kind of off-putting and unsettling. And I think that works really well for a lot of them, but that there are other times when they shouldn't look off-putting and unsettling. Yeah. And that makes me feel like it's not a purposeful thing and it's just like a feature of this animation style Yeah, that everything makes me slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely, for sure. Yeah. But I feel the same way about the animated Hobbit. Yeah. Which I really need you to watch so that you can understand all of my thoughts and feelings about it. We'll definitely watch it. I, I may have seen parts of it when I was younger, but I have not seen the whole thing and I, I don't remember any of it. So yeah, for sure. The music in this movie is such an interesting time capsule capsule, kind of similar mm. to, to Robin Hood a little bit because it's it's that thing where they're they're doing like it's not like this typical like Broadway like right. musical. It's kind of it's almost like poppy. It's like poppy for the time period yeah. uh, where and I found out. Well, we talked about that. The guy who did the music for this is was a friend of um, Jeff Bridges mm -hmm. uh, who. Uh, was like a, it was like a pop song, right? Like he wrote yeah. like a bunch of like very famous, but. Uh, he wrote all the music in this and I didn't realize because I didn't see this when I was doing all the prequel notes. They just said like who wrote the music I didn't say who performed it. It's performed by the band America, mm -hmm. which is I, I, a band I'm uh, very familiar with because I think my dad plays quite a few America songs. Uh, it was right in his wheelhouse of like that folks folk rock from the, <laughs> the 60s and 70s. Um, but uh, they're known for most people would probably know them for either Sister Golden Hair or A Horse with No Name. Most famously, I think A Horse with No yeah. Name is like their like biggest. that's the one that I know. Yeah, uh, you've you've heard Sister Golden Hair, even if you don't recognize the name. I'm pretty positive. Um, but yeah, it is interesting because the music is all very similar in that regard. I didn't love it as much as I was hoping I would because yeah. I had heard really great things about the score and I, you know, it was like a huge. It was huge in Germany and stuff, but I also had just heard other people talk about how the score is really good. And it's not bad. Like, it's fine. But it just didn't hit me like I was hoping it mm -hmm. kind of would. I was just like, eh, it's all right. I was like, yeah. it's fine. Speaking of, to go back to the animated Hobbit, um, this will mean nothing to you. But when Prince Lear kills the dragon, that dragon is like almost the exact same model as Smaug. That's interesting. When you said <laughs> it's, that, it's smaller. Yeah. It's not exactly the same, but it's like a pale imitation of how they did uh, Smaug. It's very funny because to me, it looked very much like a cl uh, like a classic, um, like Chinese or Japanese I, dragon. I, I mean, specifically more like the face. And oh, like the okay. head. Oh, okay. Because I was wondering if that's what Smaug looked like. No, in he's more. He's he is more of like a European okay. style dragon. Okay, because this is definitely like a, that that type of dragon. Because he reminded me of uh, the the dragon from Mulan. Mm -hmm. uh, Mushu. Mushu. Yeah. A little bit. Like it's that type of like body yes. type of yeah, dragon yeah, yeah, or yeah. whatever that's almost like serpent like kind mm -hmm. of. Um, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, there's a line where Smendrick uh, mentions or somebody mentions that I believe it's the 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 old magician who worked for king i think this is who says this yeah yeah uh, it's about i think it's about the 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 old magician who was working for king haggard when they showed up um somebody says he is known for, in his trade as the magician's magician i think smendrick says that about him maybe i can't remember, I don't remember. Um, but i thought that was really interesting cuz that's a thing i've heard magicians say about 
other like real life in the real world like like stage magicians card mm-hmm. magicians like you know that kind of uh illusionist what have you um that specific f- phrase a magician's magician is a thing i've heard used to describe quite a few or a handful of very specific magicians in real life and i thought it was interesting hearing that in this movie i didn't know if that was like <sighs> I don't know. I just thought it was very because I've heard people. I, I, I'm a big fan of magic. I've watched lots of specials and and read and listened to podcasts and and all kinds of stuff uh, about the history of magic and all sorts of stuff. I just think it's super fascinating. Um, and I have heard people talking at numerous times or lots of different times about again different magicians throughout history of them being like not necessarily the most popular magician or whatever, but mm-hmm. like they're the magician that other magicians are like love and think is like the coolest or the best or whatever or like respect to the most and so i thought it was really interesting hearing that line in this movie but anyways well it's from the book so peter s beagle must have yeah known about that yeah i don't know and again maybe it's just a coincidence because it's not it's not like that magicians have a it's not like the only people that say like the blanks blank right like it's not like the only um, you know, in baseball, people will be like, he's a pitcher's pitcher or whatever. Like there's other contexts where that kind of phrasing is used. Um, I just thought it was interesting specifically in this context, because I've heard that very specific thing said about, again, uh, a handful of like real life magicians. Anyways, I think my last note that I had, oh, uh, we mentioned it, but I, I did really love the look of Haggard's castle in mm-hmm. general, uh, like his throne room. I also thought his his and Lear's armor was really cool. Yeah, kinda, like, far weird. more interesting than some of the other like character designs. Yeah. Yeah, it actually reminded me kind of like what when you were talking about the, the jingly guy or whatever. Yeah, their armor armor almost yeah. had like a patchwork kind mm-hmm. of look to it that I thought was interesting. Um, but anyways, that was my last note. So uh, before we wrap up, we want to remind you you can do us a giant favor by heading over to Patreon.com slash this film is lit support us there for a few bucks a month get access to bonus content at five bucks up a month and other stuff like that including at the fifteen dollar and up level level you get access to priority recommendation which I believe this one was. Uh, no no this was just one that i wanted to do oh okay i thought your mom requested this no oh <laughs> uh, wow why did i i could have <laughs> swore i saw some, i could have swore i read somewhere that your mom requested this but never mind anyways you can if you can support us for 15 dollars a month you can request uh something and we'll put it uh, as high on our list as we can get it uh feasibly with our schedule which we are scheduled out pretty far but you know we have holes here and there that we try to plug stuff in so uh you can also do us a giant favor by heading over to facebook twitter instagram goodreads any of those social media platforms uh give us a like a follow whatever uh interact we'd love to hear your thoughts about the last unicorn or anything else we're talking about uh and we will always interact with that during our prequel episodes you can also do us a huge favor head over to itunes stitcher any of the platforms where you can rate and review us give us a five-star rating drop a review it helps get us out to more ears and more listeners we'd appreciate all of that katie it's time for the final verdict now uh, are you ready for your sentence sentence but there must be a verdict first sentence first verdict afterward the last unicorn the film is a fun movie that features unique personality filled animation and a time capsule of a soundtrack all things considered It is a fairly faithful adaptation. Most of what is in the book makes it onto the screen, but the majority of those elements have been whittled down about 25 to 50%. The movie didn't really add anything, and I will grant that most of what was removed makes sense to remove. However, I think you hit the nail on the head with your earlier comment. The movie is fun, 
but the subtle shaving down of the story resulted in something that is sometimes clunky and truncated in a way that doesn't quite work out perfectly. It was one of those movies where you turned to me afterwards and said you could tell that quite a bit was missing. The other area where the movie's slimmed down narrative falls down is in regard to the themes. The book is incredibly careful and deliberate in its exploration of its themes, especially loss of innocence, the nature of the roles we play and how events unfold, and how there is a light of hope even in the darkest, most decrepit old castles. The movie tries, but it is simply unable to fully do those themes justice. And it is for those reasons that I'm going to give this one to the book, as well as highly recommend that you all read it. I actually very much, it's a very, it's a pretty short book. I really do. I want to read it. I plan, I'm going to read it mm. here in the coming, you know, couple weeks or whatever. Um, because it is one of those things, and you said it again, but it, as I was watching, I was like, man, I can see, I can see it all there. Yeah. I can see it there. It's just not it's not all hitting yeah. together it's not uh, no, the, coming the, together the perfectly. book is really really good yeah i was like i can see all the pieces there and it's all stuff i would like it's it's it, it's not like it's a, a it feels diminishing to call it like a greatest hits of like good fantasy bits but like there's a bit of like a lot of different fantasy elements from stories that i really like mm -hmm. and i can see that it was all there but again it's just like ugh, they like edited the crap out of it to get it to fit into 90 minutes and it's just like a, a little bit disappointing because of that but yeah i'm i'm definitely gonna read it so katie what's next up next we are doing our genre spin once again and we will be talking about the devil wears prada yeah definitely a, a pivot from where we were uh, i've not seen this one but it's gonna be interesting i'm looking forward to it i have seen this movie i don't think i've seen it like since it was recently out though came out in like out? like it came out in like 2006 mm -hmm. and i think i i don't i didn't go see it in the theaters and but i i know i saw it like around that general time period mm. is when i saw this movie but i have not watched it in like the intervening years so it's been a while yeah. i guess is my point okay <laughs> yeah that makes sense but yeah uh devil's wear pro did the devil wears prada will be art i also did not know it was a book i'll be honest yeah i had no idea uh, that will be our next movie in two weeks' time. In one week's time, we'll hear all of your thoughts on The Last Unicorn, and we'll preview The Devil Wears Prada and probably learn about something. Until that time, guys, gals, and binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.